you can only talk about money with other people who are comfortable talking about money. You can't talk about money with people who haven't done that work and aren't comfortable because then their shame and their anxiety are going to be projected onto you. So you have to find people who have also done that work and are also comfortable so you can have authentic conversations. The C-Suite is a podcast about sharing entrepreneurship stories and illuminating financial concepts in a way that speaks to who we are as creatives, as small business owners, as entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs, not as finance executives. Each episode features one finance term that is explained through career stories in conversation with friends. So join me as we dive into the highly personal stories that bring finance to life. Because you can do this. You can learn to understand it intuitively. And when we do that and put new ideas into context, that's when we can learn, plan, and thrive. Welcome to the C-Suite with Catherine. Today's featured finance term is assumptions. And I'm thrilled to welcome Katie Schloss, native New Yorker, creative entrepreneur, writer, brain tumor survivor, and now hospital social worker to the C-suite today. Katie has always been one of the most compassionate and thoughtful people I know. And you can see that sensibility in everything she does. Katie founded Three Jane, a custom jewelry company in the West Village in New York City, which specialized in map necklaces, which are beautiful fine jewelry pieces that commemorate a place in the most beautiful way. She then licensed the concept to A. Jaffe, an entrepreneurial move that is a goal for many. Katie is also the person I think about when I feel like I can't do something. Five years ago, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor, a neurocytoma to be specific, and her entire life changed in the blink of an eye. She was thrown into survival mode and was forced to recreate her world. Not only did she survive the terrifying diagnosis and the surgery in December of 2017 and the recovery that followed, but she was committed to thrive. She has gone on to run the New York City Marathon, start a new successful career in publishing, and she landed an internship at UChicago Medicine with rotations in neurology and radiology oncology, and most recently got hired there as an employee. Today's podcast term is assumptions. And in the world of finance, assumptions are one of the key components in the financial forecasting process within the realm of financial modeling and planning to forecast a company's financial performance over a specific period of time in the future. And this is also the process I teach in my business, Cashflow for Creatives. Assumptions are the key numbers that matter in your business, and they play a central role in understanding what the future can look like. Examples of key assumptions could be your growth rate, your average retail price of an item, or your target profit margin. When woven together with other data, they then help you understand the potential of a company or an opportunity. Now, I love a play on words. And when I was thinking about assumptions as a financial term, it kept coming up in my mind that we all make assumptions about money, about ourselves, about what our customers want, and most importantly, about our own potential. Katie is someone who knows how powerful other people's assumptions about us can be, and most especially our own assumptions about ourselves. We're going to talk about the assumptions we make around success, around money as women, and the limiting beliefs that hold us back, because nothing, not even a brain tumor, could hold Katie back. Now, I do need to mention that the audio quality of our conversation is going to sound a little different from our usual recordings here on the C-Suite. 
but that is because Katie was so kind as to zoom in with me for our episode from her new home in Chicago. So thank you in advance for understanding that this episode will sound a little bit different, but the message is just as impactful. Hi, thank you for being here. No, thank you so much for having me. I would love to step back in time. We were just talking about the 2010s, our hypothetical glory days to round one. We, we, we look forward to continued glory days, but back at that point in time, tell me what inspired your first company? So when I graduated from college, I actually worked in fashion and beauty PR. I worked for two different agencies and I kind of saw what the process was like to get your products into magazines. So that that competency existed, but at the same time, I felt so incompetent in that role because I had this undiagnosed brain tumor. Right. So attempting to minor issue a, that will be a, a a through point throughout our conversation. Yeah, exactly. So I had this going on, but I didn't know it. So it made going to work and working for somebody else really unmanageable. Um, it was really difficult to do. And I did obviously didn't know why, and I wouldn't know why for about 10 years. Um, but I, so I, I had worked for a bunch of different female entrepreneurs throughout college. Um, I had seen, I had a front row seat in terms of what that looked like. I always knew that that was something I wanted to do. Um, so specifically I worked for Aaron Fatherston when I was a freshman. And then when I was a sophomore, I worked for Rachel Lee Brofman and now Blumenthal. Um, and so at the time she had a company called Rachel Lee. It was a jewelry company. I wanted to be just like her. Um, she ultimately um, married um, Neil Blumenthal, who's one of the founders of Warby Parker. So there was a, a summer where Neil Blumenthal and I shared a computer. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it was the summer before he went to Wharton. Um, but anyway, um, so I always saw what it looked like to be a female entrepreneur. I always knew it was something I was interested in. And then I came up with this idea while my sister was studying abroad in uh, England. I wanted to create a unique gift idea for her. Um, it was her birthday. We were going to visit her in London. So I made a map necklace of where we grew up in Connecticut. That way she could have a little piece of home wherever she went. And the map necklace was a gold plate that was engraved with a map on it. It could be any map you wanted. And then that location was marked with a small diamond. It's such a beautiful idea and concept. And I loved it when I first saw it too. Yeah. Thank what, you so much. What were some assumptions that you had about entrepreneurship at the time, you know, based on your experiences and seeing these other women? So honestly, I one assumption, which I think sounds kind of insane in general, was that being an entrepreneur was easier than working a full-time job. It was easier than attempting to do everything perfectly and then get, have someone yell at you when you didn't do everything perfectly. I thought that being your own boss was exponentially easier than being normal. And to many extents for me at that time, it was because right. like your boss, when you're an entrepreneur are your customers and you know, my customers, I would do anything for them. You know what I mean? Like if they didn't like their necklace, I would just make them a new one. You know, if someone was upset, they got a refund, you know, if, in work, I felt like the shame and anxiety that went along with, have, again, having this undiagnosed brain tumor was just too much for me to deal with. And I thought that, and my assumption was that working for myself was easier. Yeah. I mean, it's 
it kind of depends on your unique situation and almost like your core values in a sense. Like, for example, one of my most important values in my life is like flexibility and, and autonomy over my time. Therefore, the trade-off is I will have to work constantly or be constantly available um, to the business I've created. It's different than being constantly available to a, an overreaching employer, but yeah. you're you're still just as on and you're just as accountable. It just shifts a little bit. And if you can be accountable to yourself and that feels better, um, then that's a good thing. But it's certainly much, much harder as a as a path. Absolutely. Absolutely. And at the same time, like when you have that autonomy, you can also go to doctor's appointments without people thinking that you're interviewing. Like I remember whenever somebody would have a doctor's appointment, everybody in the office would be like, in the 2010s, mm-hmm. our toxic time. Yeah. <laughs> um, everyone would be like, oh, she's interviewing, you know, like, I know. So like, yeah. So like you, ha- like I would, I remember I like had something wrong and I didn't go to the doctor because I didn't want anyone to think I was interviewing. I know. I know. Yeah. What a time to be alive. What a time. What a time. <laughs> so you took your entrepreneurial experience and then you did something else with the concept, with the jewelry concept. You licensed it. Can you explain licensing and how you were able to license your idea? Yeah, absolutely. So there are two different ways you can license. So let's say you're Cynthia Rowley and you have a very big name that everybody knows. You can put your name on band-aids. You can put your name on plates. You can put your name on bedding, bed, bath and beyond. Like, but, and, you know, as a 25 year old, I didn't have a name. I had an idea and a concept that another company liked and wanted to have as theirs. So, you know, luckily they didn't just rip me off, which they absolutely could have. They approached me. Um, I, my, um, my product was in the window of Henry Bendel on um, on Fifth Avenue at the time. Um, I was one of their open sea success stories. And so somebody walked by, they asked me if I'd be interested in licensing it. Um, and then I licensed it to a Jappy, which means that then they handled all the production for me. Um, at the time, I had two engraving machines. They were next to my bed. I was like half engraving, half sleeping every night. Like I just like had so many orders that I was attempting to keep up, keep up with the production of them. Um, and it obviously was not sustainable and I knew it. Um, but I, you know, at the time I was 25, 26. And again, in the early 2010s, nobody else was starting businesses. Like I had no other entrepreneurial friends. I didn't start making entrepreneurial friends until 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the two, the first two years of that business, I didn't have anybody to like bounce an idea off of. Um, yeah, and the idea idea of is this scalable? What does my capacity look like? You couldn't talk to anyone about that. No, like what would be a better production method than what I'm currently doing? Like nobody knew that answer. You right. know, like I didn't have any mentors like who could really tell me because even like even Rachel, like who you know was a mentor in a lot of ways for me, she didn't do customized products. You know, so like her com- her company. She made products and she sold them. It was very different than what I was doing. So, you know, nobody really knew the answers to my questions. And so licensing was 100% the way I absolutely needed to go to make that scalable. And then I worked for my licensee for about a year to relaunch the program. And um, then it was doing quite well. And then I went back to school for writing, actually. I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop and then I got a job at Penguin Random House. Right. 
And then in between all of those steps, you finally got this diagnosis. I saw recently that you wrote what I gained by losing my mind. And I was like, she's such an amazing writer. She's so smart. She's so, so, I'm like, she is so brilliant. And, you know, your, your work now and where you are on your path is very much in line with, you know, other thinkers that I respect so much, like Brene Brown um, and Glennon Doyle. So I just, I wanted to go there with this quote, what I gained by losing my mind and just kind of hear you, your thoughts on, on it. So I really lost everything. Like I, you know, I, in an interview, I can say that's what I just said in terms of, you know, my map necklace got to a good place. Like, you know, that holiday season, it made about a quarter million dollars in one month. Um, And, you know, I worked a little longer, um, but then the symptoms were unmanageable. in, and then I obviously had to have brain surgery um, about a year later. At the time, I was on the same medications as if you had bipolar disorder. So I was on Lamictal and Welbutrin. And I like couldn't function. I like was not okay. Um, I lost a lot of friends because I was not okay. I really had a very distant relationship with my sister, which was like maybe one of the most heartbreaking things about it. Um, I wasn't close with any of my family members at that time um, because I was so disconnected from myself. And I remember like not wanting to call my my family because I just never had any good news to share with them. And I didn't know why. I didn't know like how to get my life back. I didn't know like how to like become myself again. Um, I also was going through like a really bad breakup at that time and I couldn't get over it. Um, I was just very stuck in all these different facets of my life. Um, so, and yeah, I remember turning 29, um, and I ripped apart my entire apartment. Um, I like took everything out of every single closet. Um, I got rid of like everything from my old business, everything from my old relationship. Um, and uh, that's like when I got help and when I went to therapy for like, you know, as an adult for the first time. Um, and, but even going to therapy, they, my therapist at one point, I said that I um, had lost feeling on the rights to my body. Um, and she said that it might may be psychosomatic. And like, just like, and this is somebody that I really trusted. And it was maybe like one of the most disappointing things about, because I I really, really loved this therapist, but I thought that that was just like such a toxic piece of, such a toxic thought. Instead of being like, you lost feeling on the right side of your body. You're having these manic symptoms. Like, please, for the love of God, get an MRI. You know what I mean? And I, you know, but... Honestly, within weeks of having the surgery, like I was like starting to become myself again. And I regained like my relationship with my sister. Like my mom is like one of the my the people that I'm closest to again. Um, there are some friends that I very much lost. There are some friends that like do not forgive you for the decade that you were crazy. Um, and I I respect them, I love them from afar. You know, we will never have a relationship and that's okay the relationships that I lost during that time, they are gone and it is okay. But the relationships that stay, those are the people that really matter. It's like having a sifter and you have like all the people who leave and it's okay. 
but the people who stay, like those are, those are the diamonds. Those are the people that were meant to stay in your life. And that, those are really the only people that mattered anyway. Yeah, that's right. There's, you know, that idea that there are people who come into your life for a reason or a season and they may not need to stay forever. No, they can go, you know? (laughs) Yeah. What, what did people or you assume would not be possible after your diagnosis? Oh, I, nothing. So I like, honestly, it was such a tough period because, um, the, my mom was like, um, you know, she's been in a bed for like, you know, this many days, like I was in the ICU for about a week. Um, and she, she was like, do you know, do you think we could get her up? Do you think that we could get her in, just in a chair? Um, and my nurse said that she's not strong enough to sit in a chair. And my mom had to reconcile this person who had run like the Rome marathon, cobblestones and all, all 26.2 miles of it, two years prior, who now was not strong enough to sit in a chair. I also had something called aphasia. And so they asked me um, what day it was. And I spelled out the word July. I was like, I don't know how to say it, but it's J-U-L-Y. And they're like, no, it's actually December. <laughs> um, and my mom was like horrified. Um, and then and then I was like, oh, I see what I did there. I was being a narcissist. My My birthday is actually in July. Um, and so I was able to like almost use the concept of narcissism correctly, Um, but like literally couldn't tell you what day it was when they do that surgery. There's a chance you don't wake up for three weeks. There's a chance you don't wake up at all. So the, and my neurosurgeon told my, this is an act of God. Um, so I had Oscar at the time, which is the health insurance company, um, that Carly Kloss's husband started. Um, and the only place where I could get that surgery was Bellevue. And this was a surgery that needed some very special attention. And so my neuro, my neurologist told me, like, this is the one guy that you need. If you need somebody else, just let me know. I will give you another name, but try this first. Um, and so she recommended this like world renowned neurosurgeon at Columbia. The person who happened to handle billing for my neurosurgeon was my mom's first cousin. Yeah. And so like, she like worked so hard to get me, you know, what I needed. Um, and I just got out like miracle levels of lucky. Wow. That's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Like, honestly, it's like, it sounds fictional. It was like, it was just utterly lucky. Um, and, you know, the biggest blessing of my lifetime, you know? Yeah. Wow. I mean, speaking of fictional and the idea of storytelling and writing in the past, you and I have worked together on my voice and starting to tell my own story. And I, th- I think the idea that you cannot thrive or you're not capable of achieving something at a certain point in your life is something that, of course, you and I have both shared with each other. And like, you know, you were coming back from this unbelievable diagnosis. I was just sharing that when I was in high school, I had a guidance counselor who told me to aim lower when it Mm -hmm. came to like my college search. And the idea of channeling our own voice and making sure we believe it, you know, to be true and that it deserves to be heard. And we all make assumptions about our potential and our worth. And so thinking about like this finance term, which is, okay, you are 
planning your 12, 18, 24, 36 months of projections, you have to make key assumptions of important facts behind your business or if you're the business owner behind yourself and your ability to pull it off. Uh, I really wanted to talk to you about something that I see in, in certainly in myself in the past and in mainly the women that I work with who are business owners planning growth. It's these assumptions that we make about getting comfortable talking about money as it relates to business. And I hear women say like, I'm ashamed to talk about asking for money for my business, or I'm uncomfortable to put my foot down and say, I am capable of doing these things. And so you've overcome so much adversity and personal struggle. I'd love to talk about where do you think this assumption comes from that we, we aren't capable, we aren't worthy? Power and control. Like, honestly, like what HR has on you is that they don't tell you how much everybody else is making at that company. Um, one of the, the honestly, I, I can get a little too excited about this topic because um, I was excited to see that in New York, now they have to post what the salary range is. Um, the fact that that wasn't the case, that you would waste your time interviewing for something when you, and then you get to the end of it and you got this job and you had wasted this time to know that the salary isn't actually what you want. Um, one of my biggest blessings is my old supervisor just like told me like what she was making, you know, and, and then you can know if this is something that you actually want to do or not. You know what I mean? I think that when we're sharing what we're making, we can make other choices also. Um, and like normalize yeah. talking about dollar amounts in whatever yeah. capacity that is and tying it to your work and your professional story. There's so much like, oh, I, I don't want to talk about my salary because I'm embarrassed or I can't believe I'm making that much or it's too low or it's too high or it's just not discussed. Absolutely. And like what I like shouted out was like just power and control is like the, these companies don't want you to have those conversations. But if you have them, like that's you fighting back. You know what I mean? Like then you know what you're, if you know what your boss is making, like you can know if this is like if you're on the right track or not. You know what I mean? And that is such powerful information for you to have that like, you know, this is the cap of what this job can make. And, you know, I'm going to work here for X amount of time. And then I'm going to do this other thing over here where I'll make more money. And in, you know, even if you like are ma- are capped at a certain amount right now, you can still have the plan of how you're going to get the amount that you want. How would you recommend people who might be listening that are not entrepreneurs, but they are working in a traditional full-time job, how would you recommend for them to start getting comfortable talking about money? So you can only talk about money with other people who are comfortable talking about money. You can't talk about money with people who haven't done that work and aren't comfortable because then their shame and their anxiety are going to be projected onto you. So you have to find people who have also done that work and are also comfortable so you can have authentic conversations. Great tip. I think it's the idea of separating compensation and earning and also for entrepreneurs needing capital to fund an idea from your own self-worth. 
They're not the same. They are not linked. They have nothing to do with each other. Um, but they are so enmeshed. 100%. It's really hard. When I was in my 20s and starting that business, how much maps made every month was completely tied to how I felt about myself, um, which is like absurd. Like if like, you know, if I remember that January, it made like, I think it was like, I think it made like $60,000. And I was just ashamed, which is like, it's so absurd in general. Um, but because I, I like had gotten it to about a quarter million and I was like, I thought that it would just like sustain that as if the holiday number was going to be sustained. You know what I mean? And then I felt like a, a failure for making $60,000, you know? And like, that's ridiculous. Uh, Self-imposing that on you. But because I was having these conversations with the CEO of this company and the CEO of the parent company, and they wanted me to to double, like they wanted me to double what I had made last year. And they wanted me to, and then they're like, and then the next year, I want you to double it again. And next year, I wanted you to double again. And I was like, well, I didn't, I'm 27 now, I'm 28. And I don't have like an MBA. I I literally have no idea how to do that. I'm just like, my only skill is that like I was a former publicist and now I sort of know how to make like Facebook and Instagram ads. You know what I mean? Like, like, I was like, I have no idea how to do that. That's what I try to help people understand though. It's like, okay, you're taught, what you're talking about is a growth assumption. So you, you're looking at your plan over time. You're like, okay, Times two, times two, times two. Well, what does that actually mean? Um, yeah, like number. What's the how? What's you know? the how? Yes. The C-Suite with Catherine is brought to you by Cashflow for Creatives, a financial literacy company dedicated to supporting the small business community through easy to understand finance templates tools, and trainings designed to help you manage cash flow with ease so you can focus on growth and getting back to doing more of what you love. Our core offering is the consistent cash flow method for small business owners, a groundbreaking approach to understanding your small business finances. This method centers around three key parts. First, understanding the key numbers that matter in your business. Second, the expenses you need to plan for based on your strategy. And third, how to craft sales goals based in facts that you believe in, and most importantly, that you understand how to achieve. When we paint this picture together, we get a very clear sense of how much money your business may need and when to be successful. This program is perfect if you're thinking about funding for your business, or if you're debating about what comes next and you want to understand how to envision the future with clarity. Plus, you'll gain access to our group mentorship and direct feedback from me. Cashflow for Creatives also offers our Simple Finance 101 small business courses. Short, snappy, powerful lessons that help transform the way you think about money in your small business. And these quick but effective mini courses have an immediate beneficial impact on your business day to day. Head to cashflow-method.com to find the next best step for you and your business. It's also linked below in the show notes. Too many sales projections, I think, are set based on these 
I don't want to call them arbitrary or totally ego-driven numbers, but people are like, I want to have a hundred million dollar company. Yeah. Like, yeah. How are you going to do that? How? Like, what are the underlying unit economics <laughs> of your thing that make it so you can accomplish this? And so it's like, let's step back. And for most small business owners, it's like, how are you going to sell one thing a day? Okay. If you've accomplished that, then it's like, how are you going to sell five things a day? Then it, it just, the goals go up, but each transaction has an underlying financial reality, which is going to impact your cash flow, your timing, how you're making the thing. Or if you're in a service business like you are now, like you've got capacity based on time. So there are these underlying facts that I just think slow down, get away from this, again, toxic 2010s growth focused at all costs mindset and think about how does this actually make sense to a point where I can explain the sales goals? I understand what they are, what they're based in, and most importantly, how to achieve them on like an action plan level. Like the, the financial tools haven't existed before for entrepreneurs to think this through and understand, okay, if I'm selling a quarter of a million in say in Mac necklaces in the month of December, what does that look like on a number of necklaces basis so that you can understand quickly, do I have enough packaging? Uh, am I able to accomplish this thing? And, you know, just like take it back to something that's more fundamental so that you can feel like you're not consumed with stress, fear, and anxiety, which just keeps people from talking about money because they're stuck in that place of fear and panic. 100%. And also like, not only that, but like, yeah, like that's what you did in December in ideal times. Like what's going to happen to you in January? What's going to happen to you in March? What's going to happen like, you know, in the not ideal months, you know? Yes. Able to understand that that's normal, that growth is not linear for people or businesses. Like there are supposed to be ups and downs and seasonality like with, with everything. But yes. this, this comes with time and experience. And you also, to transition to my next question, recently turned 35. And you shared a recap of the 35 things turning 35 has taught you. Um, what of those 35 things do you think are most important for someone who might be listening to our conversation and thinking about their future as a small business owner? Uh, okay. So so when you're like working like a traditional like nine to five job, um, and you know, this isn't it. There's this metaphor that I really like. It's about butterflies. When butterflies are in their cocoon, they actually turn to goo. Um, and I actually, if you open up, like if you open up the cocoon, it's goo. Um, I don't think there's any better metaphor for what it feels like to change than that. So if you're like at a traditional like nine to five job and you just like are completely miserable and you just have this idea inside your head and it doesn't go away, like, yes, it's uncomfortable to change, but that's how you become a butterfly. I love that. And if that idea won't go away and it's yeah. nagging at you and it's like pulling you forward and literally getting you out of bed and you haven't even left your job, that is a very positive sign that there, your idea is strong enough to pull you through the entrepreneurial journey. Like if that idea is not gnawing at you and you know there's a problem in the market to solve, like just stay at the full-time job until something is pulling you forward because it's extremely difficult. Yeah, just start it at the full-time job, you know, like start an Etsy store, like test it out, see how it goes, you know, 
And then like, once you're comfortable enough, like I stated like my PR job, like it was like a, at that point it was like a, you know, it was, I was working for like a startup PR company. Um, so I, I did it until, you know, I was making like a substantial amount of money each month. And then when I was that I moved on, you know? Um, so you go from the safe thing to something else. It's like maybe like a more precarious self that is, you know, thing, but, um, you know, you're not going from like stability to the utter abyss, you know, you're going from something that like you started at this full-time job that was, you know, and then you see it getting a little bit bigger until you, you can't do the full-time job and the, what you're doing. And then you take the leap, you know? Um, but in the meantime, like, yeah, it feels uncomfortable to change, but that's what change feels like. You're doing it right. You're not doing it wrong. You know? I love that. And I think, um, going from like, we're talking about embracing the side hustle until Mm -hmm. you're really ready. And I think what's also been helpful for me over the years is thinking of my career as like a portfolio where there's different things in it. And they don't all generate the same amount of income, but they make you who you are and they make you feel like you are not a one trick pony in a sense where all of your eggs are in one basket. And if you lost that job, well, would you be prepared to lose that job? What would you do if you did? And so kind of diversifying risk away like you do in an investment portfolio is something you can do with your own career and and your own identity. I am. Um, so I'm about to launch it. I'm just like, just like my name.com. Um, but it's exactly that because like, I've done a lot of like random things and they don't really all go together. But like, when you talk about that, they actually do. So like, yes, <laughs> well, they're a part of who you are. And so they might not be related. Like, for example, I love flowers. I love mm. f- arranging flowers. I love the flower market downtown. You're so good at it too. Do I need to become a florist? I don't think so. I deliver. I drove and dropped off an arrangement the other day to some, to a friend's, like, because I had the time and it was, it made me happy. Maybe I will become a florist in my fifties, but right now yeah. it's a passion that I love. And it's, that's it. So I think it doesn't, you don't have to understand where all the pieces fit at the beginning. Oh my God. A hundred percent. And also, um, I remember like when I was in my twenties and like, I wanted to like recreate the success that was the map necklace again, you know, like I just thought that that was like, I thought that I couldn't go back to a normal job because like, I wasn't capable of doing a normal job. So I thought I had to pick it, like I had to start something from scratch again and have another like, you know, unicorn success again. Um, and that was just like, that was such a toxic idea for me to have, you that's know? That's really not a, that's not how it works. I've had to realize like you cannot rinse and repeat the conditions that make your idea successful, you successful in a particular point in time. There's like, it's, it's macroeconomic factors, it's trends, it's where you are also. And like your own, ability to move an idea forward. And those conditions, you know, can change whether you have a traumatic health event like you did or you don't. Mm -hmm. And also I think one of the things we're talking about right now is having a hobby. Like when I was in my twenties, I thought that all hobbies had to be businesses. Yes, I know. They don't. Like you could have something that just like makes you happy. You know, it does not have to be a business. That's right. Do you think that that is, that line of thinking is unique to entrepreneurs and it's something we struggle with? Because like, I can't watch Shark Tank. It's triggering. I'm like, oh my God, 
I have five new business ideas based on this one pitch on TV. And I'm like, I can't. I, I'm like, I get so wrapped up. It's not relaxing. I've had friends on Shark Tank. It's like, I can't. I just, I can't watch it at all. Um, so I, I'm, just, I'm laughing because I've never said this before. I don't watch Shark Tank. I feel the exact same way as you do. Um, and also in my 20s, I remember that people would invariably people would be like, oh, are you going to go on Shark Tank? And I was like, sure. well, the point of going on Shark Tank is to like get a licensing deal. And I have a licensing deal. So I, I couldn't, you know, which also <laughs> is such I mean, I've always been so impressed by you and just a, the hugest fan of yours. The idea that you licensed a business in your mid 20s at that time to me has always been mind blowing. That is so advanced, like. Vera Wang had her whole business and then she starts licensing mattresses with like sealies. You you nailed it so early on in your career. And there's so few examples, I think, of people doing that. So I've always been like, honestly, in my 30s, now look back at my, because in my 20s, like I just thought all of this is normal because everybody that you're around is also like some like extraordinarily impressive, successful person. Like in my 30s, I now look back at this and I'm just like, what I just, what you know? I know, I know. it's and so also felt hard. like a failure. Like that's the funniest part. I was like, what? This is and this is what I mean, and why I wanted to talk to you about the idea of these assumptions. Because like when I got myself into Columbia Business School, I walked in there. By the way, there's a neurosurgeon on my learning team. Oh my god, which really? Is just wild. But I yeah. walked in there. Well, I walked in there. I was like, there's a brain surgeon on my learning team. I don't know how to do anything. And I, when I was seeing a different therapist right before the pandemic, and she said to me, you know, it sounds like your experience going to Columbia was a very corrective experience for you. Because by that time I'd finished the program and I was going on and on about how I arrived with this huge inferiority complex, huge. I was like, oh my God, I, I can't find the building. They're going to realize they've made a huge mistake and they let me in by accident and kick me out day one. No, like I got there. My classmates just took one look at me and were like, oh my God, you're an entrepreneur. You have employees. We are here to cheer you on and support you. And I was like, yeah, but I've never taken statistics. I don't know how I'm going to make this work. They were like, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Like we're here to support you. It was incredibly empowering, but I showed up with this sense of shame, fear, panic. How did I make, how did this even happen? Um, And now realizing, nope, you belong. We did these incredible things as 20 year old girls in New York city. And like people are capable of way more than they believe potential is like evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And so it's like where you find yourself can heavily influence your ability to dream and and try to accomplish those things, but also to feel like you're not good enough because there's all these other exceptional people around you or just out in the world that you're looking at also reminding yourself that you're in that room. Right. You know, like you, like I remember like when I got accepted to high school, um, our headmaster was like, you know, every single one of you belong here. You know, if you got accepted here. I led with that. Yeah. Like we, like, we want to make sure that you graduate from here. Like we will do everything that we can because again, you belong. So, I'm sure you're making a lot of people feel like they belong wherever they are now. I'd love to hear about how your experience, you know, as a patient might have inspired your transition into becoming a licensed social worker, which is now your focus. Yeah. um, 
you know, I, so I think this is interesting. Um, when I was in sixth grade, so we're 12 years old, right? I read The Hot Zone. Do you know that book? Oh, tell me. It's a book about Ebola. Okay. Like what 12 year old <laughs> picks up a book about Ebola and is like, yes, this, we're going to read this. Like so weird. Um, and then at the time I wanted to be this very specific infectious disease specialist or alternatively a fashion designer. Right, um, right. Obviously, you know. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, but I think it's hysterical about it is that I actually ended up doing both, <laughs> you know. Um, and then in high school. I have a portfolio idea of who you are. Oh my God, so funny. Um, and then in high school, um, I actually founded AP Psychology as a class. It's now the most popular AP at the school. Um, and again, it's like when you're, and I want, so I wanted to be a therapist, but um, yeah. <laughs> so I just feel, like when you're a kid, like you actually sort of have all the answers, like that, like whatever you wanted to do when you were a kid, like it's always been there. That was a seed that was planted and just like grew over time. Unfortunately, I picked like three different things. And so it just took a little bit longer to do all the things that I wanted to do. Um, but yeah, like then I, you know, I, I had interned for these women. Um, so I became a fashion and beauty publicist. I started the business that I wanted to start. Um, and then, you know, obviously I, um, I got sick and then I went back to school for writing. I, I got a really good job at paying a random house. My work travel was literally going to Comic-Con and Lego conferences and yeah. Disneyland. Like it was like a great job. Um, and, but ultimately I wanted to do something where I help people. Um, I wanted to help ultimately entrepreneurs, writers, young professionals, obviously current patients. Um, and so right now I'm working at, at the hospital and what my supervisor used to do is then she would work with patients outside of work or, or with clients outside of work. Um, and so she would be a social worker at a hospital during the day. And then in the evenings she would see clients. Um, and that's what I'm aiming to do right now. Like right now, I'm just like getting, you know, it's, I have only been there for about two months. What does a day look like for you now? Um, so you get in, you print your list uh, of which patients are on your service. Um, and anybody who's getting discharged from the hospital, like I prioritize those people first and just make sure that they can go as soon as they can. You know, you see all your patients, you talked with their families, like, you know, you, um, there's some things that are trickier, like insurance issues. So, um, those ones will take a little bit longer again. Like I know what it's like to have like bad health insurance and like not have something that's going to be covered. Um, I know what that feels like. So I make sure that it is. And so like people who don't have health insurance, I get them health insurance, things like that. Um, and you know, it's exactly the type of work that I would like to be doing, you know? And like, you know, when I, you know, to circle back on a question you asked earlier, like when I was unable to move, you know, when I was unable to so much sit in a chair, I eventually did get discharged from the hospital, um, obviously. Um, and I remember just like laying on my parents' couch, like imagining what, you know, my life would look like moving forward. And I just imagined like, 
being, you know, working in publishing or just having a normal job again with health benefits. I imagine just like being close to my family again. But I also imagine like being exactly right here, you know, like I imagine like getting, you know, my my therapist at the time like had an um um her LCSW. And so like I also wanted to get like my LCSW. Um, and I imagine like working in like a hospital or like something like that. So then I'd be able to like get other people health insurance, you know? And so like you, I think that when you, it, I was a coxswain for like, kind of, I was really bad at it, but I, you know, my, I had a, my, I went to a high school with a good crew team. Um, and so I tried it. Um, but one of the ways that you steer the boat is by looking at a point that's really far away to steer and, when I was on that couch that I feel like I looked at all those points that were really far away. I imagined like being here now. And I think that I was able to steer myself there despite not being able to sit in a chair and not knowing what day it was five years ago. But that is such a concrete piece of advice. The idea of like keeping that horizon in mind and I mean, you just can't get caught up in the the day-to-day so much when your goal is so huge and so significant. Yeah, just like how to like be one with the living again, you know? Well, I only have one more question for you, which is (laughs) what advice do you have for listeners who might be interested in small business and entrepreneurship today? I would just do it. Like, you know, have your full-time job, have your health benefits, like make sure you have health insurance, like always like take care of yourself first. But then like, just do the thing that you love on the side, you know, like even if it's like five minutes a day, like whatever it is, like whatever time you can carve out for yourself, do that thing that makes you happy and see if other people like it too, you know, and just do it little bit by little bit because five minutes a day adds up to hours, you know? That's right. And you don't need to go out and have these $100 million growth goals on day one. Why don't you just go and see what you are capable of and what you might be able to pull off? Yeah. And see if you even like it, you know, you know, in a, in an environment that's safe instead of like being like, yes, I'm going to fundraise. I'm going to get millions of dollars. And then all these people are like expecting a lot of me before I've even tested the idea, you know? And then you're just like, have like shame and anxiety, like try it out in like a small, very safe setting. And then you can get bigger and bigger and have your five minute goal become, you know, five, you know, five hours. You can have it start to become like your day. You can have it start to become like your weekend. And until you're like, oh, I'm ready to like actually do this, you know? And you'll know. Mm -hmm. And you, because you'll feel safe. That's why we're trying to get everybody here. So (laughs) yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. I am truly honored and I adore you. And I adore you more. (laughs) Good luck with where you are and your internship and, you know, continuing to be the bright light that you are and the inspiration for all of those who meet you. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's so good to see you, Catherine. You too, Katie. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the C-Suite with Catherine, your friendly source for small business finance and career guidance through stories. I've linked all the resources that we talked about in this episode in the show notes below. And I can't wait for our next episode together. Thank you so much for being here. Take care.